Vladimir Putin is powerful only because he has oil and gas. He could not have built a big military without it. And his biggest weapon is his control of oil and gas. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. The world has been watching in horror at the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Author and environmental activist Bill McKibben argues that this is a war fueled by fossil fuels. He writes in The Guardian, quote, If you want to stand with the brave people of Ukraine, you need to find a way to stand against oil and gas. McKibben is a noted author and co-founder of the global climate justice group 350.org. He says that the way to bring down autocrats like Vladimir Putin is for the U.S. and Europe to slash their dependence on fossil fuels dramatically and quickly. In the same week that the Russian invasion has been unfolding, the world's top scientists released a climate change report that it characterized as, quote, an atlas of human suffering. I talked with McKibben about the confluence of war and climate change and the potential solution that he says lies within the crisis. Well, Bill McKibben, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. David, always a pleasure to get to join you. Let's, uh, before we talk about conflict, let's talk about the root of it all, and um, that is climate change. And this week, the latest report has come out from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, uh, a body of experts convened by the UN. You have seen many of these IPCC reports come and go. What stands out to you about this one? Well, I mean, on the one hand, there's nothing new. The message remains the same. We're on a uh, on a uh, abrupt path towards uh, existential, uh, not risk, uh, um, certainty of um, of just horrendous trauma. What struck me this time was more the words surrounding it. The um, Secretary General of the United Nations, uh, Antonio Guterres, who I guess by definition is the world's most diplomatic person, um, uh, said that the companies that are still pushing hydrocarbons are engaging in arson of our planet. He said, we're falling far behind the schedule we need to be on. We have climate leadership has failed uh, on and on and on. Clearly, uh, he, like anyone else who really has dug into this stuff, uh, is scared out of his mind, and rightly so. For people who aren't following closely, um, review some of the highlights of this latest report. Well, I mean, they're just the highlights that we've been talking about for a long time. The temperature is now going up and quite steeply. We've raised the temperature a little more, about 1.1 degrees Celsius so far, so almost two degrees Fahrenheit. Um, That's already causing extraordinary problems. Uh, Half the summer sea ice in the Arctic is melted. That's deformed the jet stream. It's also weakened the, the Gulf Stream. So we're, we're now already, you know, popping rivets on this plane while it's flying. And, and it's scary. The, a lot of the um, report was dedicated to the idea that 1.5 degrees Celsius, which the world has theoretically adopted as a target, uh, really is the outer limit of you know what is safe in any way. 
And of course, it would take extraordinary change to get there. We'd have to cut emissions in half by 2030. So this is a powerful reminder that we're on the brink now. One of the things that struck me as I read uh, about the report was that it spoke often about the futility of adaptation uh, the, uh, that we are reaching a moment where we it will be futile. So the great faith that we've placed in technology to save us from ourselves will actually be overwhelmed. Yes. The, the, the only technologies that can save us from ourselves at this point are solar panels, wind turbines, and batteries to store the energy they produce. And the good news is that these things have become incredibly cheap over the last decade. The scientists and engineers have done their job. And so if we wanted to roll them out at speed, we could. Uh, there's no longer the kind of technological or financial obstacle that makes that impossible. But there's inertia in the way and extraordinary amounts of vested interest in the way. And both of those are slowing what we need desperately to do. Well, let's move to um, one of uh, two essays you wrote in the last week or so. Uh, one was uh, Heat Pumps for Peace and Freedom uh, that appeared on The Crucial Years, your Substack publication, and the other was in The Guardian, This is How We Defeat Putin and Other uh, Petrostate Autocrats. Heat Pumps for Peace and Freedom, um, what do you mean? How are heat pumps going to save us and stop this war? Well, so let's back up for a minute here. Um, Vladimir Putin is 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 powerful only because he has oil and gas. Oil and gas account for 60% of the export earnings of Russia, which is an, an incredible figure. But if you start thinking about it, you'll realize that Russia is really not producing much else. Look around your house and try to figure out what it is, perhaps a bottle of Stoliknaya someplace. That, that <laughs> Something in the liquor Russia. cabinet, undoubtedly. Yeah. I mean, that's about it. And and now the governor is pouring out all our uh, Russian vodka as well he should. Um, um, so 60% of their earnings come from oil and gas. He could not have built a big military without it. And his biggest weapon is his control of oil and gas. He's kept Europe cowering for two decades by threatening to turn off the tap. And the rest of us have to stand up to him with one hand tied behind our back. You know, we've done a lot of interesting financial stuff around central banks and whatever in the last few days, which is great. But the most obvious step would simply to be embargoing his supply of oil and gas, telling him not to can't sell it to the rest of the world. We won't do that because we're afraid it will drive up gas prices to the point where uh, an outraged American citizenry simply will refuse to support the people of the Ukraine. So it's a reminder that for many reasons, climate first among them, but not only among them, we desperately need to get off oil and gas. The heat pump is a good example. If you've built a house or renovated a house in Vermont recently, there's a pretty good chance that you're now heating your home as we are with an electric heat pump. Uh, it's, it's now 
affordable and accessible and elegant technology. It's basically just an air conditioner that also works in reverse uh, to take the ambient heat in the air outside and transform it into heat. And, and, and because it runs on electricity, we can run it on however much renewable energy we can produce and more and more all the time. So uh, the, the point of this article, Heat Pumps for Peace, was let's use the Defense Production Act, uh, and Biden doesn't even need Joe Manchin's permission to do it, to build a bunch of these things, millions of them over the next few months. We've got big air conditioner manufacturers in this country, carrier, train. They know how to do this. It's not technologically sophisticated. And ship them to Europe so that by the time next November rolls around and next November will roll around, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin has no leverage on people. He can threaten to cut off his gas pipeline and people will, can laugh in his face as well they should. So, I mean, in a larger sense, anything we can do to get off hydrocarbons lessens the power of the almost invariably autocratic uh, uh, thugs who uh, run petrostates. So Vladimir Putin or the king of Saudi Arabia, who, you know, cuts people's heads off with a sword when he doesn't like them, or uh, the Koch brothers who have, you know, used their winnings in the oil and gas industry to purchase one of our political parties and use it to throw our country into turmoil. So, I, you know, we'd be endlessly better off in many ways if we would simply now seize the technological opportunity to get off hydrocarbons once and for all. Heat pumps, electric vehicles, e-bikes, uh, uh, induction cooktops for your kitchen, uh, all the things that are now affordable, accessible, elegant, work just fine, go for it. You, in your um, essays, you write about the, you know, what was actually done in World War II here by using the Defense Production Act. And it's very, it's really remarkable. And I had not seen it sort of synopsized the way you did. So uh, explain what it's been done, how it's been used in the past. Well, so this is, I mean, I, I did a story some years ago about the, the year at the start of the Second World War. And it really is one of the most remarkable moments in American history. Uh, the U.S. just in, in the course of months changed its entire industrial capacity into producing war material. They told the car companies, you're not making cars anymore. Uh, um, now you're going to make tanks and bombers and lots of them. And, and the, the scale of all this was incredible. They built the world's largest factory inside eight months in Warren, Michigan, uh, to turn out tanks. They built it so fast, they didn't have a working power supply to run the factory. So they just moved a couple of steam locomotives into one end of the place and, and shoveled coal in them and turned them on. And, you know, they provided the power. Everybody was engaged in this. The guys who made uh, had been making, uh, you know, seatbelts for Fords were now making parachutes. Uh, the guys who'd been making seat cushions for cars uh, were turning out uh, uh, helmet liners. You know, just uh, uh, on and on and on. They, they they called the Upper Midwest the arsenal of democracy, and indeed it was. And they were turning out 
really complicated things. Like you know, they're producing a bomber every hour. Uh, uh, a bomber has a hundred and some thousand parts, you know? I mean, a, a wind turbine blade's not easy to build, but it's no harder than that. And we're completely capable of doing this if we want to do it. We just would need to overcome business as usual and recognize the emergency that we're in. The, the invasion of the Ukraine has, at least for a moment, summoned people into a kind of emergency set of thinking. You know, it's clear, for instance, that our financial regulators are doing things today that 96 hours ago would have seemed impossible. Um, um, and they're doing them because they need to. If only we were doing that with our energy systems, we'd be in a much, much better place. Instead, as usual, the big oil companies are trying to game the moment and convince us that what we need is somehow to produce more gas and oil. These guys, their hands are so bloody. I mean, um, you'll remember Rex Tillerson, Trump's Secretary of State, who before that was the CEO of Exxon. And while he was CEO of Exxon, he literally got a medal from Vladimir Putin for his service to the Russian, you know, uh, oligarchy. Um, um, and, uh, and, and I hate to, you know, kind of give credence to conspiracy theories in this moment, but all the conspiracy theories watched that the elevation of the world's, you know, biggest oil tycoon from America to Secretary of State and said, you see, you should have believed me from the start. Exactly right. Since, of course, one of the things that he desperately wanted to do as Secretary of State was figure out how to end the sanctions put on Putin the last time you know, he took over Crimea because those sanctions were interfering with Exxon's $500 billion investment in Russia. Um, you know, and by the way, Exxon has not yet followed BP or Shell who were shamed into giving up their huge stakes in the Russian oil and gas industry in the last few days. We'll see if uh, that sentiment works its way to Houston or not. Hmm. Um, in your essay, and you write about how we defeat Putin and, and other petrostate autocrats, what would be the scale of this? And I guess the thing that strikes me in, in reading your essays is you're quite serious about you know, if we do this with speed, we can quite quickly inflict the financial damage on the Russian government, um, you know, that will have an impact within 12 to 18 months. So yeah, how does it, what does that the, look like? I mean, the guys that, that I've talked to in the uh, federal government who work on procurement stuff say within a month, you could be increasing by 50% the number of these air source heat pumps that these companies were churning out. And within a few months, it could be, you know, three times, three X. Um, it's not that it won't be without problems. As one guy said, invariably, you know, they'll run out of some, you know, part X or part Y, at which point our job will be to figure out how to procure them. Uh, but that's what people do in wartime, you know. That's how you, and, and we have two wars. We have a, a war with Putin, one of the truly disgusting thugs that the world's ever thrown up. And we have this existential war with the fact that the temperature is increasing and, 
And it feels like a war because it's, you know, taking terrain from us. I mean, we're losing land every day to uh, an encroaching sea, to, a, a, you know, ever greater forest fires, to all those kind of things. So we need to think about this as if we were at war. The good news is to fight this war, we don't need to kill anyone. All we need to do is, you know, it's not, we don't need to produce bombers and tanks. We need to produce uh, heat pumps, uh, you know, EV chargers, um, 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 the, the, the things that let us take advantage of the fact that the cheapest way to generate power on the planet is now to point a sheet of glass at the sun. Now, it doesn't mean that it doesn't come without, you know, without costs. We have to figure out and be careful about how we mine the lithium and cobalt that are in, you know, parts of these. Um, um, and, and, and we have to accept certain changes and sacrifices. I mean, the state of Vermont uh, uh, turned down a solar farm last fall solely on aesthetic grounds, 10 acres near Manchester, solely on aesthetic grounds, no other reason. People didn't want to look at it. As you know, we've had a de facto moratorium on capturing the wind that blows across our ridgelines um, in this state because people don't want to look at it. Well, I mean, I, I get that. Uh, whatever, but that when you're in the kind of crises that we're in, then you seize the opportunities that you have, uh, and 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 that's what responsibility demands. Do you see this <clears throat> as you look around in your conversations with government officials? Um, is this being taken up in any serious way, either here or in Europe? Yeah, I mean, it, people are definitely starting to. I mean, the Germans said two days ago that they're now going to go to 100% renewable energy by 2035, um, which has increased their pace of their timetable considerably. Because they understand that, you know, Vladimir Putin cannot embargo the sun or the wind. Uh, those things are not within his power. So it would be a very good idea to be able to rely completely on them for what you need. Uh, in this country, it's a little unclear. Uh, truthfully, though they've tried with good faith in order to, to produce this Build Back Better bill that would have included a lot of uh, money for climate stuff, uh, the Biden administration, having failed there, at least so far, is not stepping up in the ways that it needs to do. It's still granting, it granted more permits last year for oil and gas drilling than the Trump administration had. Um, so it, we need way more focus, concentration, uh, effort. Um, and, and I mean, obviously it's, obviously it's it, just as we, just as we look now at what's going on in the Ukraine and think, God, we should have done something five or 10 years ago. Um, so inevitably we're going to look back uh, on a climate-ravaged planet in a few years and think, God almighty, we're we missing a good opportunity. I thought one of the things that captures some of both the, the tragedy and absurdity of the conflict was reading that there was intense fighting around Chernobyl. Uh, mm. And I thought, you know, maybe therein lies a solution. What if the Ukrainians just cede Chernobyl, this nuclear <laughs> wasteland beneath a concrete sarcophagus, just cede that to the Russians and say, here, take your nuke and 
Leave the rest have of this, the country yeah. to us. Yeah, no, you could sort of imagine the uh, you know the Ukrainian army saying, "No, whatever you do, don't don't take Chernobyl." <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, talk about poetic justice. Um, uh, Chernobyl's yours now. Um, it, the idea of quote winning Chernobyl. Yes. Um, you know, one of the uh, more uh, powerful images of many powerful images that are emerging in the last week out of Russia and Ukraine is the image of protesters in Moscow, peace protesters, mm. anti-war protesters. And I wonder, as somebody you have thought deeply and, and about nonviolent resistance, and, you know, at a moment like this, where we've now broken into open warfare, um, what is the role of nonviolent resistance in the Ukraine-Russia crisis? Well, I mean, it's it, 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 you can't ask people in the Ukraine to just be nonviolent, though it's amazing to watch the images coming from the Ukraine of just groups of people surrounding tanks and, and uh, in essence, daring them to run them over, you know. Um, um, but we can't ask everyone else around the world to be thinking in every possible way how they can make this happen. So, you know, uh, uh, nonviolent resistance looks like building millions of heat pumps and sending them to Europe. Nonviolent resistance looks like uh, FIFA telling the Russians they don't get to play soccer anymore. You, I, I mean, there's there's some things that hurt, and that was one of them, is my guess. Um, you know, uh, uh, nonviolent resistance looks like smart uh, economists figuring out how to make it impossible for Russia to access its ill-gotten reserves. Um, um, on and on and on. And it's been, you know, the bravest people are the ones who are doing this in Russia because it's entirely clear. I mean, look, one doesn't, I mean, one doesn't want to call people madmen um, um, because what good does it do? But clearly in dealing with Putin, one's dealing with a person not in control of his entirely of his emotions look at the um look at those scenes of the like 50 foot long table where he sits at one end and his you know satraps cower at the far corner um, um it's a scary place i mean uh, russia and that people are brave enough to be taking to the streets knowing, I mean, you know, I've gone to jail a lot of times. I've done a lot of civil disobedience. It's never fun. It's always a little scary, but not like that. I mean, I didn't, I, I did not, you know, was not under any fear that I was going to disappear into the gulag and never be seen again, which must be what rational Russians are thinking as they take this action and what brave and, and remarkable people they are. Is there... and, it's, and it's worth, it's a very good reminder to us, by the way, not to blame Russians for what's going on. Um, um, you know, they live in a society where they have very little control over what happens in their name. Uh, and, and and we should we should remember that it was only a year or so ago that, uh, you know, our country was being run by its own chaotic and bumbling, if not, you know, happily somewhat less competent uh, uh, idiot too. And we didn't want to be blamed for every stupid thing he did. Um, um, Russians have little choice here. Putin and his oligarchs have much, and it's to them that we need to be standing up. 
Um, before we end, I want to uh, touch on your latest work with Third Act. Um, mm. Just say a little bit about what Third Act is and what your focus is right now. So Third Act is this new outfit that we're launching with many Vermonters already engaged that attempts to organize people over the age of 60 for uh, progressive change. And I'll tell you one of the places it came from, you know, I've done a lot of organizing, mostly with young people. We started 350.org with myself and seven college students at Middlebury. Uh, you know, we've done all this divestment work on college campuses. We've gotten, I've gotten to work with wonderful people who I truly adore, like Greta Thunberg and things like that. But at a certain point, it really began to annoy me that we were taking the most difficult problems the planet's ever faced and just assigning them to 17-year-olds as extra homework, you know, um, do this in between algebra and field hockey practice, you know, would you mind saving the world? And, and so it's time for the rest of us to step up. We're working on two projects that seem generational to me. One is the defense of democracy and the other, the defense of the climate. Uh, uh, you know, our, our democracy is under great strain. Those of us who are alive to watch the Voting Rights Act pass in 1965 should feel great anguish and shame that it's now being taken away. Uh, uh, and obviously, the physical planet that we inherited, we're about to leave in far worse shape uh, to those who come behind us. So Third Act's organizing has been great fun. Uh, we've got uh, a lot we're building this, what we're calling a democracy force of volunteers to can phone and text bank and all the other things that now we can do across the country to help in strategic places. And we're doing this big pledge to get people to uh, disassociate themselves from banks, close accounts, cut up credit cards from City, Chase, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America, unless they stop funding the fossil fuel industry by year's end. And since older Americans have 70% of the country's financial assets, compared with 5% for millennials, if we're going to stand up to, you know, the center of capital, uh, it's going to be older people who are going to have to do it. So it's great fun, in part because many of the sort of icons of that era have already rallied to help. I got to interview Carol King last uh, last week for our monthly national phone call with thousands of people zooming in. Uh, and I'm talking, I think, to Bette Midler tomorrow. Oh, and boy. So these sort of iconic figures who are still very much, they're reminders, David, that in the, for those of us of this age, our first act was an interesting one. We were around for a period of remarkable cultural, social, political transformation. We participated in or bore witness to it. Uh, if our second act taken as a whole was not quite so great, maybe a little more caught up with consumerism than citizenship. Um, that's water under the bridge now. And we emerge into this third act with skills, resources, kids, grandkids, um, and with a generational DNA that we need to reassert itself. Uh, we need to be, again, the people who thought that the world could be a better place. Well, Bill McKibben, I want to thank you as always for uh, enlightening us and uh, sharing your wisdom with us on the Vermont Conversation. Back at you, brother. It's good as always. And thank you for keeping the Green Mountain State well abreast of all that's underway in this confused, interesting world of ours. Okay. Take care. 
That does it for this Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.